Peace and love. This is Brother Fahim. You are now tuned into the Leave Logic Podcast. You know the vibes. What's going on, y'all? What's going on? What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Leave Logic. Hey, man, like I always say, it's been a minute since I've been in it, but I'm, uh, I'm always striving to win it. Man, life moves so, so fast. Um, it makes you want to go look at time and what time really means. I always see the the uh, <clears throat> the horizontal eight, the infinity symbol, and I think to myself, damn, you know, uh, forever is a long time, but man, it doesn't seem like it's, uh, <laughs> it seems like it gets here quick. It seems like time just moves at such a light, light speed, you know, faster than the speed of sound, faster than all that stuff. But nonetheless, I try to make the best of it, and I try to gauge it and cling on to it and move in that way, move in a way that's positive. Anyway, man, summer's almost, well, summer is over, but the weather is beginning to die down, beginning to wind down. I always, I like the early fall because it's a calming effect, man. You know, fall, when the, uh, when the leaves turn colors and, you know, the weather gets a little bit more chilly. Yeah, we got to bundle up a little bit more, but at the same time, it's a, uh, it's a calming, a, uh, a calming that comes at least that I get, and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool feeling, man. A very uh, still and uh, and chill feeling, relaxed, you know, a state that, that comes over me. So I look forward to this weather, you know, and then I feel like the rest of the world does too, because depending upon your location in the world, man, you've been getting beat down by that heat. So <laughs> a change up is something different, but. <clears throat> But nonetheless, man, I um, I try to pay attention to things. I try to listen and learn as best as I can. And then at the same time, take what I've learned and uh, translate it into some kind of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that will, you know, help pique the listener's uh, interest and also enhance their knowledge base and reference base and give you some kind of value and impact your day in some kind of way, man. And so I um, I had a thought, I'm always really grappling with this. You know, what is black power? How do we define that? How does that look? You know, uh, is it different in different eras? You know, was it the same a hundred years ago as it is today? You know, um, how does it manifest itself? And how do we work toward it? What does it mean as a collective for black people to work toward black power? So uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I want to start it off by telling you guys a story about a gentleman named uh, James Meredith. His name is James Meredith. And James Meredith took it upon himself in 1966. He did what was called the March for Fear. And what it was, you know, civil rights passage, the voting rights had gone through, civil rights had gone through. So he was trying to motivate people to vote in certain states, right? And so what he did was he started this march. He said, I'm gonna march from the doors of the Peabody Hotel, which is in downtown Memphis, <clears throat> for those of you who know, to uh, to uh, Ole Miss, which is in Jackson. So it's about 270 miles. And what he was doing was, again, he was combating racism and the discrimination 
that we have been uh, experiencing at this point. And so he gets shot. But that doesn't stop the march, though. When he gets shot, uh, the Southern, the SELC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they send Martin Luther King, or, the, or Martin Luther King's involved, Floyd McKissick from CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, and the newly elected leader of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael, who would later become Kwame Jure. Uh, they all get involved. And when they get involved, you know, um, of course, it's a big deal. That many power hitters from the Civil Rights Movement. If you know anything about the Civil Rights Movement, those organizations, those names, they're forever etched in history. But nonetheless, they were walked through all these counties and, of course, they were arrested. And I think it was Greenwood. <clears throat> you know, they get arrested and they get out and they're talking to a group and, the, you know, the cameras are there and they're rolling. And Martin Luther King speaks. And then Stokely Carmichael speaks. And one of the last things he says to the group was, we want black power. <laughs> we want black power. Well, that is in the last 60 years, mind you, rather, 60, 70 years. Uh, that would be considered the spawning or the... Uh, the zeitgeist or the motivation for the black power movement. It was considered the, the motivation for the black power movement because after that, you know, you saw a pivot. You saw a pivot in <clears throat> in objectives and goals, right? Because the riots had popped off. Malcolm had died. You know, we were seeing a lot of, uh, of violence, but we weren't seeing a lot of uh, advances made, at least not to the degree that we wanted. There was still blatant oppression, blatant discrimination, blatant racism. And so the young people, uh, the black people were quite tired. And so when he said we want black power, they really lit a flame in the people and it started a whole movement. In fact, it started the black power movement. So, um, you know, that is, that is how the black power movement initially began. But I wanted to mention that just because I think it's a great starting point for what I'm trying to tell you guys today. <clears throat> and what I'm trying to tell you guys is, hey, um, regardless of what your definition of black power is, regardless of how you perceive it and interpret it, um, there, are, there are a couple of things that you might want to consider when you start talking about black power, when you start to define your uh, your meaning or your place, uh, that definition to it. So, yeah, today's episode was, uh, what is black power? So, like I said, Stoke Carmichael stands up and says, we want black power. Now, <clears throat> that starts the black power movement. So, you know, a couple of things about the black power movement that were different from the civil rights movement. It was, it was almost the goals. It wasn't almost, it was the goals. It was the objectives, right? What they were trying to do. <clears throat> you know, the Black Power Movement is so, so uh, beloved to Black people because you really start to see this bust, a resurgence of racial pride, right? And autonomy and self-determination that we hadn't seen since like the, the Harlem Renaissance, right? The New Negro Movement, where we define ourselves in film, music, and literature, all that stuff. But, uh, 
you know, with the Black Power Movement, we were able to see uh, the emergence of people like the the uh, the Black Power, the Black Panthers for self defense, right? You were able to see uh, Malcolm X, uh, hence the Nation of Islam, got a whole lot more popular. <clears throat> right there, they get a, a huge surge in recognition. And we're also, one great thing, I think Pan-Africanism is really advocated for because we understand that nothing happens in a vacuum. A lot of countries, when you go read the history of Asia, Africa, Latin America, they all had movements that were similar to the one that we were going through in America. And it wasn't in a vacuum, meaning it did not happen uh, just by itself. It was all uh, concurrent, right? It all ran concurrent at the same time. And so uh, that was something uh, that was a staple in the Black Power Movement. It connected all of these uh, third world people. There were undeveloped countries, countries that were being oppressed, right? And it really focused on economic, social, and political power. Right. Rather than just, like I said, integrating into a society that was run by uh, the dominant group, which was primarily the white, uh, the white power, uh, the white power uh, structure. But. But, yeah, so um, black power, this movement is huge, it's huge. Now, the first time I know I, I, I read where Richard Wright was supposed to have wrote, he wrote, he wrote a book in 54, I think it was, I think he wrote the book in 54 called uh, Black Power, right? And um, like I said, there were points in our history where we might not have labeled it as Black Power, but we absolutely were uh, in alignment with the goals of racial pride, autonomy, and self-determination, you know? And so, uh, so that was an early reference, but now going into this, uh, it was it was very huge. And so, now one of the names that I mentioned was Stokely Carmichael. I mentioned Stokely Carmichael. He changed his name to Kwame Ture. And I believe it was Stokely Carmichael. Don't let me. I want to say he was Ghanaian. Uh, uh, you know what? Let me look it up while I'm right here. Stokely Carmichael. I know he was from the Caribbean. And, uh, he lived in New York. But uh, was he from? He was born in Trinidad, right? He immigrated to New York in '52, so he was a Trinidadian, right? He was Trinidadian, Stoker Carmichael. Uh, yeah. So you know, you have Stoker Carmichael here, and what happens? Something interesting happens. He writes a book called Black Power. <laughs> Black Power: The Politics. Of, uh, of liberation in America, yeah, Black Power, him and Charles Hamilton, right, Charles B. Hamilton, and uh, the book is really amazing, right, uh, they deal with a lot of topics and issues that are still relevant today, coalitions, multiculturalism, powerlessness, a couple of those things we're gonna, I'm going to discuss, but um, this was black power in that era, right? This was black power 60, 70 years ago. This was how it was born. This is how we understood it at that point. This is just the starting point that I'm going to go with. A couple of things he said in the book. Um, he talked about closing ranks. Um, that would be separation. The way the Honorable Elijah Muhammad 
says it is separation. There's a difference between separation and segregation, right? Segregation is one powerful group isolates or ostracizes or, or uh, uh, places another group in a, in a certain place or position to remain powerless. But separation is when two equal groups decide that for the mutual benefit of both, they go the separate ways so that they can build up their power structure, right? It's not possible uh, to build up that power structure without separating because philosophies and norms and customs and ideologies can become infused into one or the other and it can ruin or sour the whole uh, purpose of the separation, right? But this is, um, this is the way that uh, Stokely Carmichael put it. He said, uh, and I'm just reading this from his book, right? On page 42 of Black Power, Politics of Liberation in America, he says the adaption of the concept of black power is one of the most legitimate and healthy developments in American politics and racial relations in our time. The concept of black power speaks to all the needs mentioned in this chapter. It is a call for black people in this country to unite. He said, unite first, right? To recognize their heritage, to build a sense of community. It's a call for black people to begin to define their own goals, to lead their own organizations, and to support those organizations. It's a call to reject the racial institutions and values of the society. We still struggle with that today. I think it's interesting that he put unite because it's hard for us to unite. It's hard for us to unite, um, for us to come together. We allow the most pettiest, uh, elementary, um, irrelevant things to stop us collectively from coming together. We let religion stop us. We let political affiliation stop us. We let skin complexion stop us. Now we let gender stop us, right? We let all of these things get in the way of us being united and our children suffer. Our group suffers because you, you know, you don't have to be in uniform to be united. What does that mean? You don't have to wear the same philosophy. You don't have to wear the same ideology. You can be a communist and I can be a socialist, but we need to come together under the under the banner of wealth, power, and nationhood. Can we do that? Um, it's just a lack. We lack, and we're not monolithic. I know that. I understand African-American people, black people. Let me say black people. Black people are not uh, a monolithic group, meaning we don't all have the same uh, philosophy about things. We don't all believe one thing, that's fine, but it's imperative and it's incumbent upon us that we begin to unify around our group collective benefit because other, other cultures do, and I'm gonna talk about that later. But like I said, um, he talked about that, right? He talked about uniting. Uh, recognizing our heritage, build a sense of community. Um, you know, communities. You have to be united to build a community. And I'm not talking about a neighborhood. A lot of us don't. <laughs> Very few of us live in black communities. We live in black neighborhoods. We're residents of black uh, of black dwellings, right? The banks, the schools, uh, the grocery stores, the businesses. They're not really ran in control, but even the local politician, your alderman, you know, your mayor, all at every level, do we run in control or do we have to go outside of our community? You know, 
But he goes on to say the concept of black power rests on a fundamental premise. Before a group can enter the open society, it must first close ranks. I like that. I'm going to read that one more time. Before a group can enter the open society, it must first close ranks. In other words, people have to be let out. I mean, kept out. Excuse me. It has to be exclusive. You have to exclude everybody because there again, you'll begin to let in uh, foreign ideologies and philosophies that might be counterproductive to the whole goal, which is the advancement of the group collective. Some of us have become so, so indoctrinated and so, so involved and enthralled in this multicultural, multiculturalism society that we've neglected ourselves. There's never a time that I'm going to feed the whole block and let my family and my house starve. You out your mind. You best believe I'm feeding my family first. And then I'm going to go outside and help the community. Let's not be silly. You know, when you're on an airplane and that stewardess is explaining the rules of how to maneuver and how to function if the plane starts going down and you got children with you, the stewardess don't say put the, put the mask on the children first. She or he says, put the mask on yourself first. How can you help somebody else when you can't even help yourself, right? That's retarded. That's ridiculous. That thought process that we're going to help everybody else and then neglect to help ourselves. He goes on to say, by this we mean that group solidarity is necessary before a group can operate effectively from a bargaining position of strength in a pluralistic society. That's what I'm saying. Bargaining position of strength in a pluralistic society. All these different groups that are vying for power, they need leverage, they need something that they can push forward so they can position themselves with strength. How do we build strength? What, what helps us build strength, right? Traditionally, each new ethnic group in this society has found the route to social and political viability through the organization of its own institutions with which to represent its needs within the larger society. So see, they build their own, they build their own, their own, uh, they build their own institutions and they run their own institutions. That's the way they set their power base up. But it has to be run and built by ourselves. It cannot be, it can't be occupied by a bunch of black people and run by a bunch of other groups, whatever group it is. Right. And I say ever because <laughs> there's a lot of groups I see in black neighborhoods, right? I see Korean people in the hair care. I see Hispanic people doing contracting work. And I'm not hating. They're doing what they're supposed to do as far as uh, a business, a business model. You know, they're they're functioning how we're supposed to function in a capitalistic society. I don't fault them for that. I'm just saying that maybe we should get on that. No, I'm not saying that we should. I'm saying that, uh, that maybe we should. You know what I'm saying? That we should get right on board and, and jump on that ball because that helps us in a larger society. Because what happens is we're continuing to see the same type of atrocities happening throughout the decades, throughout the eras. The same thing that happened Emmett Till should not happen to Tamar Rice. What, what's different or what should be different? Um, studies in voting behavior, specifically in political behavior generally, have made it clear that politically the American pot has not melted. Hmm. So there you have it. Um, the way they used to put it in school was, America, breathe, we act like we are soup, but we're really a salad. 
you know, when you put a soup in the pot, water is the base and you have all these spices that make it, that give it flavor. You know, you want more spices to give it flavor because you understand the more the spices mesh and the more they gel, it's going to make for a sweet or a sour, just a flavorful, uh, a flavorful dish. But that's not really how it works. Really, we're a salad. We're all in one bowl. We're all in one space. And we're together, but we're not. We're separated. And we're all trying to touch the top. We're all trying to touch that cream, that sauce at the top. But they bolster, you would think from the outside looking in, that uh, we advocate that soupy, meshy, uh, gel-like society. But we don't. We still don't. Because we still see the same things happening over and over. We still see history is stuck. If this were hip-hop, the DJ is looping the record back and forth. Why is that? What's going on? What's happening? But again, uh, these coalitions, this multicultural society, it hadn't been working. Uh, and I mean, it's cool, but I think we have to get ourselves together first. And that's what Stokely Carmichael was saying. That's what he was, that's what he was saying. Uh, excluding these people, excluding these groups so that we can build something up. Right. Um, the next thing you talked about was powerlessness, right? Us being powerless. You know, when you start to to certain people, man, when you, when you start talking about black people gaining power, man, it's, it's almost like you're saying something blasphemous, right? People don't want to hear that. <laughs> people really aren't down for that. But uh, he says this. This is page 44. He says, we, an informal group of Negro churchmen in America, are deeply disturbed about the crisis brought upon our country by historic distortions of important human realities and the controversy about black power. What we see shining through the, the variety of rhetoric is not anything new, but the same old problem of power and race, which has faced, which has faced our beloved country since 1619. He's addressing people uh, attacking black power, saying black power is something that's detrimental to the fabric of America. I mean, it's no different. Any group that they deem subversive, they have to vilify. Any person that they deem subversive, they have to vilify or a threat to the power structure. They're going to vilify you. They're going to say, oh, man, that's not good. You know, this is harmless. This is harming America. This is not good for our country. Uh, the conscience of black men is corrupted because having no power to implement the demands of conscience the concern for justice in the absence of justice becomes a chaotic self-surrender. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. I'm going to say that again. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. We are faced with a situation where powerless conscious meets consciousless power, threatening the very foundation of our nation. Man, he said a lot in a few sentences. He said something that was profound. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. Are we beggars? Will we consider ourselves beggars? Beggars are people who, how do I put it? When I see people on the corner, I use that as an educational opportunity for my children, right? And I tell them, um, if you do not learn how to build wealth, if you do not learn how to um, be creative and uh, intuitive in this capitalist society, 
you can end up just like the person right over there on the side. You know, it's too much. It's too much wealth. It's too many resources in America for us to not capitalize on it, right? My father used to say only a fool would starve in the meat house. Collectively, there's no reason why we as a people should be broke and should be homeless and should be begging. Do you know that, I think it was the Nelson studies that shows, it's out there, y'all can look it up online. Black people spend the most in luxury items and with the least qualified to afford them. I'm gonna say that again. We spend the most on luxury items, suits, purses, shoes, electronics, automobiles, liabilities, things that bring us no value, things that do not help to garner more and more wealth, nothing productive, and we cannot afford it. That's crazy. That is absolutely insane. And then at the same time, we'll go and beg for jobs. We'll beg for things that are going to help us when we have everything we need already. Again, it goes back to that first point of uniting. See, you can't do that if you don't unite, though, right? If you don't unite, then you're going to be, I mean, you pretty much ass out. But yeah, a race of beggars. Nobody respects a beggar. Do they... Do people look at us as people who create our own? I mean, not the few, right? Not even a good many. I'm talking about collectively. When you, I always look at different groups when I go different places. When I go to different um, sections of town, like if I go to Chinatown, Koreatown, Jewish town, I look and I like to look at the land. I like to look at the condition of the land. I like to look at the people, the condition of the people. I like to look at how they're moving, what they're driving, you know, how, how do they carry themselves, right? Do they come from a position of lack of desperation or are they moving and navigating life from a position of power? Meaning they have resources at their fingertips, not just financial resources, but social resources, social capital, they network with their brother, their sister, their cousin, their uncle, their aunts, their mothers, right? Um, and what I see a lot of times is, man, these communities, whatever community they are, uh, they come together, they unite. They know how to unite and pool their resources because they understand that concept. They understand that they allow themselves to be divided and conquered. If they allow themselves to not leverage and to not build a power base, then they will be those people on the side of the road. They will be those people begging. You know, I think I referenced in one of my other podcasts, I talked about a clip I saw on Instagram a while back. It was over the summer and I let my wife hear it. It was so profound. They were interviewing this, this guy. He was a Chinese guy. They were interviewing him and he was dealing with, he was talking about how he dealt with white supremacy or the white power structure globally. And he, you know, he, he accepted where he was, what he was dealing with. And he said, you know, we just study, we build, we learn the game and we build wealth and we build our power and we move 
from that way. And then if you would say something like, what about black people? You say, what about them? They're a non-factor. They have the opportunity to do the same thing that we do to build their power. But instead, they're mad at me because me and my people want to hire people like us. I want to hire my people over them. They want to be equal. You know, they want to protest and march. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's the truth. You know, that's that that's that begging, right? Instead of coming together. Um, that's the begging. But um, yeah, uh, powerless conscious means consciousless power. So basically, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? But we're good people, and so uh, you know, but we're working within a society where morality has really no place. Uh, where you have morality in excess. Or, you know, you know, you don't have it. So, um, yeah, Mr. Carmichael was telling the truth. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. I think we should begin to, to build and find ways to increase our power. Jay-Z said it like this, financial freedom, my only hope. Forget dying rich. Forget living rich and dying broke. Um, I would say forget living rich. Let's, let's die wealthy. Or at least working toward it. Or at least setting your children up to work toward it. And there's a lot of things you can do. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's so much that you can do now in this new age, right? Things are changing. Yeah, they're changing. Things are changing. Let's just hope. They're changing for the better, <laughs> and I and I think they're changing for the better. I really do. But um, <clears throat> moving on, the next thing he talked about was defending itself, right, or defending ourselves. I mentioned that just because, again, when I think of defending myself, or at least whenever I think about defending, whenever I think about my ideology on a topic, I try to make sure I instill it into my children the way that I envision it in my mind or the way that I know it to be efficient and accurate. So when I think of self-defense, it's not just about our physical defense. It's also about our psychological defense, if that makes sense, right? Because everything starts in your mind, your will to fight, uh, your strategical efforts to fight, um, you know, organizing yourself and know your loved ones to fight. That's all mental. That's all a mental exercise that has to be sharpened uh, before you can move forward efficiently and effectively. So um, <clears throat> with so many, with so many, uh, so many things that are attacking us constantly and, and unconsciously, right? Or subconsciously, we should, we should always be looking for different ways to defend ourselves from different things that are out there. For instance, I don't really allow my children to listen to a lot of hip hop. I say this all the time just because of I do not want it to be implanted to their subconscious minds. I know that subconsciously what they hear will have an effect on them that they don't even realize has an effect on them. You know, you know, I was, hey, I grew up <laughs> and I listened 
to all forms of hip hop, maybe prematurely on some levels. Uh, and not, not because it necessarily made me think I was somebody I wasn't, right? I didn't listen to uh, NWA and, and go out there and think I was, you know, uh, I went home fuck the police or nothing like that. But it put in my mind some things that were normal, right? I started to look at certain things as the normal about our people, right? Like the, the negativities that I experienced. I didn't know uh, that that was not supposed to be that way, right? What do I mean by that? Well, I didn't know that we should celebrate black excellence from an academic and a uh, a mental aspect because I, what I saw and heard was, you know, either sports, either making money playing sports, you either rapping or you're in the underworld. And that was all uh, reinforced through the music. Not to say that hip hop is bad or it's all bad because it's really not. Hip hop also introduced me. <laughs> it also introduced me to a lot of people, a lot of things that I might not have been introduced to otherwise had I not been exposed. But early on, uh, when I was listening to just primarily what was being played on the radio, what was being pushed by the dominant group, um, it definitely had an effect on my psyche, uh, how I dealt with sex, how I dealt with uh women on some degree i might not have been blatantly disrespectful but i might have had an idea i had an idea about how things were supposed to go based off of what i had heard in a song right because when you you know a child's mind who is super duper impressionable and so we have to be careful because the slightest footprint the slightest uh indenture can cause a life-lasting imprint so um, I try to defend my children from that. And when I do let them listen to certain forms or different genres within the hip hop uh, world or the hip hop genre, right? I try to explain like, hey, this is number one. This is like a movie that you have seen where you have an actor, you have a director, you have a producer. This is a production. <clears throat> While it might be based on some form of reality, it's not real. So don't think that you need to uh, recreate that or that's the norm. Because music is so, so powerful. It's an energy. That's why, you know, it can make you laugh. It can make you cry. It can make you feel all these different emotions. That's what it's meant to do. That's why you feel a certain way when you when you hear the song, maybe that you had your first kiss on. Or you, you hear the song, maybe that you were listening to when you found out a loved one passed, whatever. The music has an energy uh, to it that is undeniable and it's influenceable and impressionable. And if our logic is not strong enough to sustain how the energy affects our emotion as young people, we can get into a cycle. And that's unfortunately what I see happening. And so I don't allow my children to do that. I don't. I mean, that's my way of defending them. And saying, hey, this is something that needs to be filtered. You can listen to this as you get older. You get more 
as you get more responsible and you get more knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Now, there are certain artists that I listen to, certain conscious rappers, right? Rakim, Nas, certain Nas songs, right? Common, certain common songs, most deaf quality. That whole uh, neo soul era, you know, there was some pretty good music from my from my perspective. So, um, but even that has to be monitored because they're still not, you know, they're still using some some pretty profane language. But <clears throat> defending ourselves, Stokely uh, was talking about defending ourselves, and he said this. Um, a key phrase in our buffer zone days was nonviolence. He was talking about the civil rights movement. For years, it's been thought that the black people would not literally fight for their lives. This has been, this has been so. Why this has been so is not entirely clear. Neither the large society nor black people are noted for passivity. Notion uh, apparently stemmed from the years of marches and demonstrations in sit-ins where black people did not strike back and the violence always came from white mobs. Uh, many will still sincerely believe that, that in that approach, from my viewpoint, ravaging white mobs and white night riders must be made to understand that their days of freehand head whipping are over. Black people should and must fight back. Nothing more quickly repels someone bent on destroying you than the unequivocal message, okay, fool, make your move and run the risk, I run, of dying. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, we see a lot of violence against, we see a lot of violence inside of ourselves. Let, let me say this. When I, when I think of violence within our community, I think about it in twofold, right? You have black on black violence, and then you have black and other, any other uh, group violence. Now, the group that typically gets the most notoriety or recognition in the mainstream is when white people commit an act or another group commits an act and it's considered a hate group or, you know, more recently it's been the police uh, shooting unarmed, unknowing, unconscious black people, black bodies. Um, but there is also a fragment of our community that is destructive in the same way. And we are not as focal. We are not as irate. We are not as livid and upset about that, right? And so we have to have the same energy <clears throat> when another external group harms us. We have to have the same energy as when an internal group. And again, going back to the point that I just made, um, a lot of it is normalized through what we hear prematurely as as kids, man. A lot of us are still hip hop, and it's normal for us to kill each other, and that's not cool. So we have to defend ourselves on both fronts. We have to defend ourselves. Um, that's one thing that I think every child should be involved in. The way to cure that, the way to curb that. If you're not in karate, if you're not in some sort of discipline, you should at least teach your child uh, self-defense, self-defense, uh, psychological self-defense tactics to protect themselves from, you know, what they will encounter if they have to go out to the school system, but also physical self-defense tactics so that they can protect themselves. And I say psychological because that can deal with the, the, the strategy. How do you not allow yourself to be a victim? How do you see danger coming? And if you can go around it, but if you have to, you go through it bravely and courageously um night riders and rampaging mobs i just read uh, the other day where 
um, Ahmad Arbery killers, the two that you know did the formation. They call it, I think they call it like a Gator formation where they they were in front of him and then they were behind him. They got life without parole. And I think the guy who came on TV, he got something like 30 years, something like that, with paroles, I believe. He got a, it's a pretty lengthy sentence, but it was a, a little bit lighter than what the other two, the father and son, got. Why don't I bring that up? <clears throat> I'm not telling anybody to go out and do anything violent. I'm not telling anybody to go out and harm anybody. I am telling people to defend themselves. I am telling people to legally own firearms. I am telling people to legally and uh, consciously and intelligently teach their children about firearms so that there's, number one, you take away the infatuation. Number two, you let them understand, hey, this is a tool, none of, no no different than that knife that I use to cut up dinner. Do, do we allow you to play with the knife? No, we don't. Well, this tool is a million times more dangerous than the knife. And if you do not want to be an orphan, if you do not want to lose your life or see your uh, your family or your brother or sisters lose their life, you do not play with this. You do not even think to play with it. That is off limits to you. But you understand how deep and how serious this tool really is. So, yeah, we need to thoroughly uh, begin to uh, educate ourselves on defense on all levels. He goes on to say this, when the concept of black power is set forth, many people immediately conjure notions of violence. The country's reaction to the deacons of defense and justice as a group out of Louisiana, you should check them out. It was a uh, movie made about Forrest Whitaker played the main character, which originated in, going back to the, uh, I'm sorry, going back to the, uh, the text, the country reaction to the deacons of defense and justice, which originated in Louisiana, is instructive. Here's a group which realized that the law, quote unquote, and law enforcement agencies would not protect people. So they had to do it themselves. If a nation fails to protect its citizens, then that nation cannot condemn those who take up the task themselves. The deacons and all of the blacks who resort in self-defense represent a simple answer to a simple question. What man would not defend his family and home from attack? That's huge. What man wouldn't defend himself and his family and home from attack? Um, wow, over that, you know, before the summer kicked off, I think we saw Uvalde. And to me, what, what I'll never forget is that was the most current example of the police being ineffective. And it's the most current reminder that it's really up to you. It's really up to you to get done what you need to get done. Because um, those kids didn't have to die. Whether it was, uh, whether it was a, a a a bad call, whether it was, you know, a misunderstanding, faulty instructions, whatever, those children died, and so that was a loss that was a bit too heavy for an ex for an explanation. There, there is no explanation for that. But what we can do is vow to form up that the, these groups, you know, they, they formed up in the civil rights era because they took action. They, they identified, hey, listen, we are being targeted. We are being systematically targeted. And these people are, these mobs, these, half the time, these aren't even really 
police. It's just that the police and the state government are allowing them to do this and get away with it, right? So we have to defend ourselves. We have to let people know, hey, look, it's not going to happen like that. One thing I love about the Nation of Islam is the fruit. When's the last time you heard about the fruit having problems within the black community with gangs or with the white police or with any hate group? Nobody's running up on the fruit because they know what time it is. They know that you will get your whole neck broken as you should. As you should. Um, so we have to we have to take that bow. We have to identify problems regardless of it's uh, from internal, whether it's from inside the community or from outside the community. Eradicate ourselves and 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 defend ourselves because nobody's going to do it for us. Now that was Stokely Carmichael in the book The Black uh, Black Power. Politics of uh, Liberation in America. I'll fast forward to Dr. Claude Anderson in his book, Poweronomics. Poweronomics is great. A lot of people talk about just um, dealing with the problem. He deals with the solution. He gives us several solutions, y'all, on how to uh, how to collectively uh, how to collectively advance and move forward. But he deals with a couple of different concepts that I thought were uh, that I thought were interesting, right? He deals with this concept, ethno-aggregation and vertical integration, right? And horizontal movements. In the in his book, chapter two, the third key to empowerment, he says something that I think is that I want to start out with. He says the old civil rights paradigms no longer make sense in a competitive pseudo-colorblind society. They are not grounded in reality. They have encouraged and prepared blacks to compromise rather than compete. <clears throat> the civil rights mentality is outdated and it uh, it encourages black people to compromise rather than compete. See, all this welcoming everybody in, even Stokely Carmichael said we need to close up the ranks, right? All this welcoming everybody in, all these coalitions, all these things, what has it gotten us? It's outdated and we're not competing. I would say we're competing, we're competing with one another, right? But nonetheless, you know, he talks about ethno-aggregation. It's just basically what different ethnic groups do. They, they come together based on their ethnic uh, background or their nationality and they pool their resources in order to move forward for the benefit so they can have some kind of power base, right? Now, once they move forward, once they move forward, once they come together, then they can begin to move vertically. They can begin to build power. They can begin to uh, enjoy things like wealth and uh, resources. All these things become uh, available. All these things become um, realities of life and not just fantasies and design. <clears throat> but again, it takes group participation. Again, it takes uh, everybody being on the same page. Right? They work hand in hand with each other. The way he uh, broke breaks it down um, is like uh, a T, right? A power T. Now, 
the way the old vanguard did, at least let's say the civil rights era, you know, you figure you take a T and you flip it. <clears throat> a T has a, a, a straight horizontal line and it has a vertical line going down. Well, the old model is a, a, a flip T where the, the line is the base, the horizontal is the base, and then the, the vertical line uh, is, is stemming up. And he said, you know, what, what that horizontal line represents is social integration, right? And then a few attain some kind of mobility. But the collective is going to stay down with social integration, right? That's the old model. That's what we've seen. Our mentality is, hey, you know, if we can get, if we can be equal, you've all heard it. I just, I don't want to change. I just want to be equal, right? Um, they're discriminating on me. You know, I just want a fair shot and a fair chance. Uh, you know, we want to go to the schools uh, that are not our schools, that are not run by us. You know that are not uh, teaching us, or, or that have people who know how to deal and be compassionate and sympathize with us, or who are, let's just say who are at least not biased against us. But yeah, the social integration is the base going horizontally, but then it lets a few; it allows for a few. Now the new model, right? It's the ethno aggregation where everybody pools their resources together. Right. And then once we do that, we can move vertically and along the way we can compete. We can surpass and we can transcend every group. And then everybody touches wealth and power. Now, you might say this is a little bit it's a little bit exclusive. And it is. But this isn't this what other groups do. Right. Isn't this what the Arabs do? The Dutch, the Italians, this is what all ethnic groups that come to America do. They have a plan. They have a plan to advance themselves. They're not, they're not coming over here to be a multicultural society. They're coming over here because, number one, the opportunity exists for them to move themselves and their stations in life vertically. right? And number two, some of that wealth and power, they can brain drain it, meaning that they can use their brains uh, and drain some of those resources that are here in the West and funnel them back over to the East or wherever their countries are. Now, you would think it wouldn't have to be too hard for us, right? Because we were right here in the country. But there's still a form of bank of brain drain that can that can happen, right? We can help our communities. We can go back to our communities. We can teach. We can make people aware. And I think that that's happening now. I think what's happening now, I would call it an economic renaissance, right? Because people are beginning to become highly aware, highly engaged and active. I'm not just talking about entrepreneurship. While entrepreneurship is increased since the Trump era, since Trump was in office, more so financial literacy and wealth building uh, is becoming more of a norm collectively, at least, excuse me, at least for the circles that I listen to and the circles that I try to run in. Um, and that's amazing. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, we have to use the, the new vertical model where we ethno-aggregate all our resources and pools so that we can move vertically and not rely on the old horizontal movement of social integration that only allows a few people to aggregate and integrate. And I mean, to vertically uh, move up the ladder, right? 
Um, so yeah. So now that's how black power was described then and how it's described now. Those are two versions or two uh, descriptions of what black power is. Now, what do I say? I say black power is absolutely more than a cliche. It's more than a call to arms, right? It's more than just a, a battle cry. Black power is dependent upon green power. What I mean by that, if you cannot sustain your community, then you have no community power, i.e. there is no black power without green power to leverage it, right? Um, and all of those different intangibles deal with it. Everything that Mr. Carm that, uh, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton discussed, you know, separating, closing up the ranks. How does that look, man? <sighs> Stop letting different people participate in stuff they should not be participating in. You understand? Different ethnic groups, they don't need to have a say-so in what we do. We don't have a say-so in what they do. This ain't your business. You know, this this is not. This is not. And it's, hey, because your, your business isn't our business. We have to build a, you have to build and make yourself strong before you can come out and start taking, uh, taking on people from other places, from other entities, and allowing them to come in. Don't do that. Close up the ranks, establish a code, and move from that space. You know, you know, powerlessness uh, breeds a race of beggars. We really gotta find this 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 power. Uh, we really have to understand how to uh, work this power thing, right? Because uh, it's it's huge. It's very huge. Um, and nobody, nobody loves a beggar. Nobody even likes a beggar. So, um, and then defending yourself. When you think of defense, don't stop at physical defense. Remember, defense starts in the mind. The more you know how to defend yourself, the more comfortable you will be and the more prepared you will be. You know, learn, learn, um, learn the psychology of defense not just the physicalities of it. You know, um, when I think about certain uh, vessels or instruments that are, you know, yielding power out there in the mainstream right now, I want to give you guys three things, right? So here are a couple of resources for you guys. Maybe you knew about it, maybe you didn't. Some things that you can uh, engage and in, involve yourself in that you will learn more about, you know, building power through financial literacy uh, and wealth building. So this one is passed the Invest Fest of 2022. It was the 5th of August through the 7th, and it was in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I mean, that was that's real big. If you're connected or, or tapped in to the Earn Your Leisure uh, crew, then you you probably already know about InvestFest. Some people they have Steve Harvey, they have 19 Keys, um, who else? Wall Street Trapper, uh, Master Ian Dunlap. These are all people who are pretty much like rock rock stars in the financial literacy space. And it's more chic. That's that's for the younger people. You know, it's a younger crowd, which is good. 
Next, you have the Black Wealth Summit. It's from the 27th through the 29th of October in Baltimore. Um, that seems to be an older crowd. You know, it seems to be, when I looked it up, it seems to be a crowd that's, uh, which is great as well. You know, it's it's uh, it's not really a whole bunch of known, uh, I won't say known, I'll say younger, uh, appealing people who are on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. I don't think you, you might be able to catch some lectures from these people, but I didn't see anybody off the rip that I, you know, that I recognize. The next is the All Black National Convention, and that's from the 28th to 30th of October, and it's in Charlotte, North Carolina. To me, that's the most brainy one, right? Anything Boyce Watkins puts his hand on, uh, it's going to be super, super brainy. And I'm a, I'm a Boyce follower. At least, I won't say a follower. I'm going to say I'm a person who engages with Dr. Watkins and learns every time I engage, meaning I listen to one of his audios, I listen to one of his YouTube lives, and then and the brother never disappoints. So, so yeah, the InvestFest, that happens every year. I know it's past, but it happens every year um, from the 5th to the 7th. And then you have the Black Wealth Summit, again, from the 27th to the, from the 27th to the 29th of October. In uh, Baltimore, you have the All Black National Convention from the 28th to the 30th of October in Charlotte. Um, some things that we can do, man. Again, knowledge is power. Application is, uh, knowledge is good. Application is great. So, you know, when you know, it's time that you, that you grow and you only grow by applying what you know. I want to shout a couple, so a couple black businesses out, a couple of people uh, that are doing some big things. First and foremost, I want to uh, shout myself out. From the 2nd through the 6th, I'm going to be at the Chicago African Festival. I'm going to be posted up. I'm going to be out there. Uh, I'm going to have my merch. Um, be talking to people. Uh, I'm going to be spreading the lead with logic uh, message of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So if you're in the area, man, the African Festival is huge. You should come out and enjoy and partake. Um. Who else? Who else? What else? Who's some, who's some more people? So uh, this is long overdue. <clears throat> you got these are people that I support. Uh, people that um, are like I said, black business doing things. You got my man uh, Kiki Hicks for real. He's a basketball aficionado and trainer. You have. Um, my homegirl, DP Cell Chicago. These are all people on Instagram that you can follow. You have Jam Lux uh, Consulting. These are all black people doing things online. You have True Boutique. Uh, Miss Alex Moore uh, has a boutique online. Super dope, super dope. All of them are super dope. All of them are doing big things. All of these people have... Uh, have tapped in and have decided to leave their legacy uh, and build some wealth. And, you know, part of us, part of the solution is uh, patronizing our own, you know, going to the Instagram page. Um, another one is uh, only for purpose on Instagram. Also, my homegirl, uh, I Dare You to Heal. Uh, 
these people are doing big things and uh if you patronize them that'd be great peace and love y'all